This episode originally aired as a part of my other podcast, Project Shadow. Over there, I have been doing world-building content for a while, and I'm currently moving it all over to this new podcast. New episodes will be appearing soon. I am currently making all of my old content, including Worldbuilding 101 and Worldbuilding 201, available on this podcast as Season 1 and Season 2 of Mythweaving. I hope you enjoy, and don't forget to have the fun. Remember that I warned you that we're going to take our worldbuilding into a deeper level now. I am specifically calling this the 201 because this is going to get more advanced. Today, we're going to make a dead French philosopher, Roland Barth, roll in his grave as I take his descriptive explanation of how stories work and explain to you how you can use them as proscriptive tools for actually creating a work. Yeah, one of the architects of the death of the author is going to help us learn to be better authors today on Project Shadow. Hello everyone, how are you doing today? My name's Charlie, you might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, and hopefully you're following along with all the weirdness that I'm doing with Princess Rescue Squad over on World Anvil, because I am so excited! And I'll be actually demonstrating a lot of these ideas over there in the Story Bible section. Which, by the way, we'll talk about Story Bibles a little bit later in this series. But today, we're going to really infuriate a dead French philosopher, Roland Barth. Now, he was one of the founders of the school of thought that has come to be known as Death of the Author. And you can look back in the back catalog. I've done episodes about him in the past. I've even done episodes about his five codes in the past and how they can be helpful. Today, I've decided to help use them for world building. The previous episode that I had done about this, and I will put it in the playlist on Spotify for this, if I can find it in the long back catalog of episodes that I have done. We'll see about that. Um, I do a lot of episodes. That's why I'm so excited about the playlist features, because I can group these up and make them easy for y'all to share. But when I talked about it before, it was about how to use the five codes for a novel, not for world building. So if you want that, like I said, that's back in the back catalog. Um, oh, by the way, speaking of the playlist, I want to say thank you to everyone, including World Anvil, who shared my playlist yesterday and are helping to get the word out about world building, because it is one of my great passions. And welcome to the new people that have come to the podcast because of that playlist making the rounds. I saw it all over the place. I hope I thanked everyone who I saw sharing it. If I didn't and you're listening, I'm sorry I missed it. Thank you so very, very much. You, you, it means the world to me that you all are enjoying the content that I'm doing. Okay, so this is not going to be a strict lit theory episode, though it really could be. I, I am fascinated by literary theory and I really love digging into it, but I'm going to try to be 
as simple and straightforward and useful as I can be with these ideas, because you can really get bogged down in them. And this is going to be the first part of a multi-part breakdown of the five codes. The next five episodes after this will be about each of the codes in turn. This is the overview episode. Don't skip it because, you know, this is how it all works together. And that's going to be how each one individually works. Okay. All right. Let's just go. So Barth basically said that there were two kinds of works in the world, because what kind of a great thinker are you if you cannot create a binary, right? This seems to be a cultural touchstone of our civilization for way too long. And I personally, as with all things in life, think that there's a spectrum, but he, he titled one, the writerly text and the other, the readerly text. And these mean the opposite of what you think they would, because of course they do. A readerly text is one that is strictly and staunchly dictated by the writer and means what the writer intends it to mean because the writer doesn't leave any room for any other interpretation than the one that they decided to give you. J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter is a very good example of this, where we could, once upon a time, run off into our flights of fancy and guess and play with a lot of the different elements of the world, she has decided to dictate from on high what the answers to some of our questions are, thus trying to take some of the magic and the mystery out of the setting. Our goal, especially with world building, is not to make a readerly text. Our goal is to make a writerly text. Now, what is a writerly text? A writerly text is one that involves the reader, that the reader's engagement in the story makes the story come to life, that there are questions that the reader has to answer, there are bits that the reader has to put together, everything isn't just handed to them on a silver platter. A lot of web fiction does this. In my previous episodes on this topic, I've focused a lot about how this could be used to do web fiction. And guess what? World building, thanks to World Anvil, not a sponsor, though you, you could be, you know, Janet, if you want to throw some ducats my way, I could take the Florins, the Gill, whatever. You can pay me in Final Fantasy money. I don't care. Um, or you can help me cover my Grandmaster membership, which I do pay for. So I don't want you to think that I'm a shill for them. I, I, I pay for their service. I'm not paid by them. But thanks to World Anvil, we have a place to post all of our world building and templates that help us build our worlds out and the tools to interlink it so that the world can really truly come to life. It allows us to turn our world building into a writerly text. So how do we do that? Well, Roland Barth basically said that text the meaning must come from the text. It doesn't matter what the author intended. It doesn't even matter who the author was or their particular beliefs or meaning that they try to write into their stories. The text must speak for itself. And so he um, proposed the five codes as a way to read the text, a way to decode the text and uncover the actual meaning within the text itself. 
So the code here is meant to tell us the meaning, the how we are to understand the story based on its existence. The words, the images, the questions it asks, all of those things come together to make the story. And in our case, to make the world. So don't think about these as to-do lists. Think of these as kind of prompts and things that should be fluttering around in your mind while you're building a world so that it has that openness and that spaciousness that we all want our worlds to have so that not only our characters can live and thrive within them, but the imaginations of our readers, and for those of you making games, our players, can really take over and feel like they are a part of the world as well. Okay? So these are sometimes called the five voices or the five strands. Again, different ways to look at the same thing. All right? So the first one, and I'm not going to be using the terms that Barthas used because, like I said, we're trying to keep this simple. He actually called this one the pro-eretic code, and more power to you if you want to call it that. Yeah. No, we're, we're, we're not doing that. This is the action code. This is the code of action. This is what actually happens. So while we're looking at our story, while we're looking at our world, these are the events that take place. This is the plot synopsis. This is the backstory elements, the cliffhangers, the unresolved elements of the story, anything that causes a reader to ask, so what's next? If it poses that question, then it is part of the action code, the action voice, the action threat. Okay? And this is stuff we really should be building into our world, especially our world. The story may answer a lot of questions, and we kind of wanted to. That's what makes a story satisfying, is getting to a conclusion, getting to a point where we're like, oh, okay. But if we want our worlds to be vibrant, the world itself needs to invite questions that don't have easy answers. So while you're doing your world building, build mystery into it, which we'll talk about later when we talk about one of the other codes. But always make sure that in the world building, there are these built-in, well, what next? Well, what happened after that? What, what was the result of that? That's floating around in there because one, for you as a writer, those are natural built-in prompts that will help you find places to hook in and tell further story. And for your readers, they will give, and players, they will give them a place to hook in to the story and let their imagination come to life and experience the full force of your world acting within them. So first, first voice is action. It makes us ask the question, well, what happens next? Focus on that and you're off to a very good start. Our second code is the Enigma code. This one is might actually be more than one episode when we talk about it in depth because there's a lot to talk about here. The, Enig the Enigma code is the voice of truth. If you want the original name, this is the hermeneutical code. Because, yeah, we're using big words because it, it's philosophy after all. 
But this is the enigmatic, the mystery, the puzzles. These are the elements and entities of the story that really don't have easy answers. They're exactly that. They're mysteries. They're puzzles. They're enigmas. So when we're building this code into our world, we need to start asking ourselves, well, how do things fit together? And how can we put the parts out there in a way that other people can start putting them together themselves? How does the world all fit? How, what are the mysteries of our world? How are we going to tackle all of the variant issues that come forth and leave them open so that people can explore them? Now, this, co this voice of the story is where the theme comes in. So if you remember our value being pursued in our scourge, a lot of the mysteries in our narrative are going to be based off of those. And if you're not familiar with those, please go to the playlist and look back to the previous episodes. It's just a couple episodes back from this one, explaining our value being pursued and our hero and our scourge and our holdfast. This is where the theme comes in. So when we're building our enigmas, for them to feel rooted in this world, they need to be built out of that scourge. They need to be built out of that marvelous element. They need to be built out of that value being pursued. Because the more we do that, the more it will feel natural to the world. Again, <laughs> I feel like I'm ragging on her, but I, I, the point of this is to show how world building fits together. This is one of the reasons why some people have an issue with the horror cruxes, which come into the story of Harry Potter. They don't seem to fit. The theme of Harry Potter is love. And so the magic that preserves Harry's life in his mother, through his mother's sacrifice makes perfect sense within the story. And so having it there as a mystery of how that works and how that in that use of the magic of love is powerful and resonates with us. The Horcruxes, in some ways, you could kind of see as the antithesis of love, because you kind of have to kill somebody to make one, because you have to break your own soul, but because there's not a clearly defined scourge in the wizarding world, it's harder for us to see how it's rooted in that setting. If she had explained that a little bit further or developed that a little bit further, then that would feel like a much more natural element to the story. Star Wars does this quite well with the mystery of the Force, the mystery of the good side, of the light side, and the dark side. Everything in Star Wars arises from that. All of the enigmas, all of the questions, all of the mysteries arise from that. And even in Rise of Sky, the Skywalker, they do a good job with that. Okay. The next voice or code that we're going to talk about is the character code. This is the canonative code. This is the semiotic code um, to use the more verbose language. This is where we start looking at signs, symbols. We start looking at the characters for who and what they are. This is the biographies of our characters. This is the important groups in our setting. This is the places, the words, the phrases. These are the things. That's the canonative code. That's the character code. So while we have our action code making us ask the question, what next? 
the character code answers the question, who does it? Or where does it happen? Those more concrete questions are answered here. Okay? Next, we have the referential code. Now, the referential code, or the cultural code, is, for me, one of the more fun ones to try to build. This is what connects all of the things. Because it's not just enough to say, oh, there is a city in England named London. Well, London has a very specific cultural connotation to it. It has a, a particular meaning to it. So what connects London to the rest of the Br British Isles, to Great Britain, to the United Kingdom, to the Commonwealth? Those connections are what we're talking about here. They're the referential code. They're the stories. They're the myths. They're the legends. They're the beliefs that hold our world together. They're the connective tissue. Because it's not just enough to say that that is that it is the capital of Great Britain or the capital of the United Kingdom. That's not enough. We can start talking about why. We can start talking about how. We can talk about that Lambeth and we can talk about Westminster and we can talk about the seat of the church and the seat of the crown and how those are the main power sources and how they have built up the city of London and how the city of London ended up having its boroughs and dot, 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 dot. All of that connective tissue, which is after all, what we have come to world building to write for the most part, that's all in the character code. And that's why it's important to look at these other methods. Because when I look at most world building, it's just the character code, the referential code, and the action code. Sometimes. The action code gets forgotten a lot. The enigmatic code gets forgotten way more than it should. And not enough time is built in making this all come together. The last code is the symbolic code. This one is, what do these things mean? What is the deeper significance of it? What is, what is it actually there? These are the organizing elements. These are the things that matter. If I say that this is where the crown and the church are, those for your mind need to be thought of as symbols. Why are they important? Why is the crown important? Why is Lambeth Palace important? Why is Westminster important? To continue using our London example. What is the symbolic meaning of those things? If you've ever watched an opening of Parliament, well, what's with the scepter and the crown and the train? And why do they do all that? And why? what is the meaning of this action and that action? All of that deeper meaning, all of that deeper connotation, that is all part of this voice. This is the contention between the characters and the groups. This is the motifs that weave throughout the story. These are the symbols and the MacGuffins and what gives them meaning. And remember, the difference between a symbol and a MacGuffin is a MacGuffin is something only the characters in the world care about. A symbol is something that we all, characters and readers, care about. Big difference. We'll talk about that. And this is where our themes are really explored and built into the narrative. We've already figured out one of the things here. This is our marvelous element. If you followed along with the previous set of world building exercises, you've already determined your marvelous element. That's the first symbol. 
because remember, it's symbolic of the value being pursued and how it can bring about an end to the inauthentic state and reverse the scourge, even if only for a time. We've already built one symbol. And I'm not saying that everything has to be some symbol symbolic. Not everything has to have this deep, richer meaning. But think about the rings of power. They have meaning because a ring is a symbol of authority. Inheriting a ring, having a ring of power is important. So they represent not only a piece of jewelry that one wears on their hands, but the authority invested in the person wearing the ring. And thus, the rings given to the elves, the dwarves, and to men, all slaved to the one ring to rule them all. You see the symbolism in that. It's the authority, it's the chain, it's the unjust hierarchy that's being put in place to control the world. And thus there's a deeper symbolic meaning that resonates within the actual items themselves. And that's a brief overview of our world. That's a brief overview of the five codes that we're going to be exploring. So start thinking about that and poking around in your world building and asking yourself, well, what do I already have? Because pretty much you've already started building some of this into your world. But remember, the goal is not to use these as necessarily checklists. We're not going into this part of the process going, okay, let me make sure I've done that and done that and done that and done that. Like with the cycles that we talked about previously, this is another way to apply those cycles in. And when we are telling a story, a myth, a legend, we're creating a character, a kingdom, and a city, a magical item, whatever it is in our world, these are five ways we should look at that thing and make sure that we're building it out to its fullness so that it resonates with our readers the way it resonates with us. All right? I'm excited to continue this world building series. I can't wait to get into these. And I told you we're getting into the nitty gritty. This is the beginning of the nitty gritty. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear on the show, Please, in the show notes, you'll find a link to the voice message system. Keep it short, keep it clean. I would love to hear from you. You can also hit me up on social media. I am C. Dorset on both Twitter and Instagram. And you can find links to everything that I do over at projectshadow.com. Alrighty. I think that's it. <laughs> I do. I, I think that's it for today. If you've got a book you can pass my way, then you are a fortunate soul in these troubled times. Down in the show notes, you'll find a link to both the voice message system and... My, um, my Patreon. Thank you to everybody who does that. It means the world to us. We got our PPP loan today, so we're doing better than we were. <laughs> Thank heavens. Um, hopefully you're doing well through all this. Please do not feel any pressure to do that. If you don't have any money right now, trust me, none of us do. <laughs> I truly understand that. But if you know anybody that you think would like the work that I'm doing, please share it. That helps out much more than you know. Alrighty. Thank you all so much. You mean the world to me. Um, yeah. So as we're going through all this together, stay well, stay safe, stay home, and don't forget to have the fun. Bye. <laughs>